So, preaching on the Ten Commandments from Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or in, that is in the earth beneath, beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, for I the Lord your God am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands who love, of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Thus ends the Ten Commandments. So there's really so much that could be said. Many, many books have been written about the Ten Commandments. Uh, so, it, and it's more than you can bite off in one morning, but we'll do what we can do. First thing I want to uh, do is make one observation, that the, the Ten Commandments are Jewish. That God begins the Ten Commandments by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It, it was connected to the rescue, the redemption of Israel that God gave the Ten Commandments. So just as the Messiah of God came through the Jews in the person of Jesus, so the law of God in the Ten Commandments came through the Jews. It was given to Israel at Mount Sinai just after God had delivered them from Egypt through the Red Sea. And just think about how unlikely this is from a human perspective. An obscure tribe of Egyptian slaves rushes into the desert to hide from pursuers. And then emerges 40 years later with a law code summarized in 10 brief commands. 10 commandments which are the most influential moral code in the history of mankind and still of course have a profound effect today on people all over the world 3,000 years later over 3,000 years later I believe this could only be explained by the first words that we read this morning in Exodus 20 verse 1 when it says 
God spoke all these words. Now we know that some laws of the Old Testament continue into the New Testament and some are set aside or changed in a certain way um, from what they were in the Old. So Christians have argued over how we should view the Ten Commandments. Are they to be viewed as our law as they were for the Jews? Well, let's look at the facts. First of all, it's clear that the Ten Commandments are something very special. The Jewish rabbis tell us that there are 613 commands in the law of God in the Pentateuch. But the Ten Commandments clearly are not just 10 out of the 613. There are many ways that they are shown to be exceptional and set apart from all the rest. Number one, they were spoken by God's own voice out of heaven. Number two, the, the speaking of them was accompanied by extraordinary signs, flashing flames, quaking mountain, loud blasts of the trumpet, like a trumpet, thunder, thick darkness, and a loud voice. Third, they were written by God's own finger on the tablets. Twice, because the first ones got shattered and he had to do it again. So they were written not only by God's own finger, but they were written in stone. Not many things get written in stone. But when we even use the expression, it's written in stone, that means it's designed to last. They were kept in the Ark of the Covenant, right in the, the house of God's presence that dwelt in the temple. And they were, the Ten Commandments were given twice. They were given by Moses, or they were given to Moses at Mount Sinai. And then just before the Israelites went into the Promised Land in Deuteronomy, they were given a second time in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Almost word for word, although they're somewhat different. The second fact that we can look at about the Ten Commandments is that each of the ten is clearly and specifically reaffirmed in the New Testament except the Sabbath law. And we'll get to that in a moment. So each one is restated. The next thing is that Whenever the Ten Commandments are referred to in the New Testament, and they are frequently referred to, in the epistles, for instance, they're always cited as authoritative and binding. It's never implied that any of them have ceased. Let me give you a few examples. In Romans chapter 13, verses 8 and 9, <clears throat> 
Paul addresses the Ten Commandments. He says, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for the love who for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall commit adultery. I'm sorry, you shall not commit adultery, that's number seven. You shall not murder, that's number six. You shall not steal, that's number eight. You shall not covet. And any other command are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbors yourself. So here he's quoting the Ten Commandments, or at least four of them, as if they're still uh, have the same authority over us and, and talks about them as the all summed up in the expression, you shall love your neighbors yourself. Similarly, in 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 to 13, Paul says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the, God, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. For those who strike their fathers and mothers, so that's number five. I mean, these are, this one is not a quoting like he did in Romans 13. But he's clearly referring to the Ten Commandments because he's got, you'll see. Those who strike their fathers and mothers, that's number five. For murderers, that's number six. For the sexually immoral, that's number seven. For the men who practice homosexuality, that's also number seven. Enslavers, number eight which is stealing, which is, you know, enslaving is under the, that umbrella. Lying, number nine. Perjury, which is number nine as well. And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of, of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So here, not only does he, you know, refer to these Ten Commandments, but he does it in perfect order. Five, <clears throat> then six, then seven, seven again, then eight, then nine, then nine again. And so we, we, we see how he is referring to them, never questioning their authority, very much applying them to us as if we are under the Ten Commandments. James 2, verses 10 and 11. He says, Forever, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So here again, citing these two, number seven and then number six. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So again, speaks of them as if they have the same application to us as they did. Ephesians 6, last passage. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for it is right. Honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long on the land. So he's applying, you know, he's addressing children. He reminds them of the commandment to honor their parents as if it's still very valid and, uh, and, and no word about it having different application than it did in previous ages. And that brings us, of course, this is all the epistles. That brings us to the way that Jesus handled the Ten Commandments. Um, Jesus also treated the Ten Commandments as if they were still very much in force. When uh, in Mark 10, 
as Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man came up, ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, You know the commandments. Do not murder. Six. Do not commit adultery. Seven. Do not steal. Eight. Do not bear false witness. Nine. Do not defraud. Also nine. Honor your father and your mother. Five. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. So here's Jesus addressing this man. He later tells him that he needs to sell all his possessions, but, uh, which is a stumbling block to the man, but, but he first talks to him about the law as if it's still in effect. But Jesus also asserted his authority over the Ten Commandments in certain ways. He says, you heard it said, but I say to you, we see this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 21 and 22. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So he's taking the, the Ten Commandments and he's uh, he's enlarging our understanding of what it means. He does the same thing a few verses later in 20, Matthew 5, 27, 28. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lust, lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And the people were amazed at the way that Jesus handled the law. This was so different than the way that the rabbis did, who, who uh, were interpreting. And, but Jesus had a, spoke with authority, as if he was in charge of the commandments. That brings us to three stories of Jesus, which seem to be based on the Ten Commandments. The first one you've heard me mention before is the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5 to 7, where Jesus seems to be acting like a new Moses. This is why, this is the only good explanation for why it specifically tells us that he went up on a mountain to deliver this sermon. And the main part of the law that he delivers up there, of course, is the Beatitudes. These you know, short and pithy statements that resemble, in a literary way, the Ten Commandments very, very closely. However, they're very different in their content. And then when he finishes those Beatitudes, lest anyone think that he's giving a new law which is meant to replace the old law, he almost immediately moves to say this. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. 
But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So we have this extraordinary way that Jesus is like acting like a new Moses in giving the, the law on the Sermon on the Mount. And then uh, just as Moses gave the Ten Commandments a second time, Jesus gives the Beatitudes a second time and the Sermon on the Mount sort of, a second time in what is called the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6, which again specifically says that Jesus spoke these things from the plain, which is where Moses spoke the second law from in Deuteronomy chapter 5, from the plains of Moab. So these, you know, why is these references to the place here when so many other times it doesn't have anything to say about where he was when he said this, especially geographically. The third story is the transfiguration in Matthew 17. And here, just like when Moses went up to Mount Sinai, it says specifically he went up to a tall mount, that a cloud descended over the mountain, just like in Sinai. That a voice spoke from the cloud, just like at Moses at Sinai. That the face of Jesus radiated light, just like Moses' face when he came down from the mountain after receiving the Ten Commandments and his face shone. The f- that fear struck the observers, just like with Moses. But in this case, Who's there with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? Moses himself, along with Elijah, the great prophet. And those two, Moses and Elijah, were the only ones in the whole Bible who ever spoke with God on Mount Sinai. So this draws our attention to this incident as being a recapitulation of Moses at Mount Sinai. And the point being that on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is again imitating Moses in some way. Only this time, Moses is, you know, it's interesting, Joshua was Moses' helper when Moses received the law, but now Moses is Jesus' helper on the Mount of Transfiguration. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, after Moses gave the law the second time, but before he went up and died on the mountain, God told the people through Moses this, The Lord your God will raise up a prophet for you like me from among your people, from your brothers. It is him who you shall listen to. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So he tells through Moses that there's going to be another prophet and that they should, must listen to him. And now on the Mount of Transfiguration, with Moses standing right there along with Elijah, God speaks out of the cloud. And he says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. He's the one. He's the one I told you about. He's the one you have to listen to. 
So we see on the one hand that Jesus reaffirms and stands by the Ten Commandments, but also that he asserts some kind of authority over the Ten Commandments and over Moses through whom the Ten Commandments were given. Now, um, the problem with preaching on the Ten Commandments is that the, uh, the Sabbath is uh, an exception of the pattern and um, it is not specifically reaffirmed nor is it specifically uh, set aside and so it's this special category and um, if I spend the rest of my time if I explain what I think is going on with the Sabbath I won't have any time to do any application for this sermon and so I'm just going to basically try to ignore, it's all in the notes. I'm going to try to ignore my notes and say a few things to summarize off the top of my head and uh, so that we will have time to get to the application, which um, is, you know, so important. But basically, um, I believe that, that in the Sabbath law, that God doesn't reaffirm it because he doesn't intend for it to be um, practiced in the same way as it was before. That is, the Sabbath um, is not to be practiced, for instance, on the seventh day, which it actually says in the Ten Commandments, on the seventh day. It is now to be practiced on the first day. And so there's, there's a strange transition that's going on. That, that's why Jesus said he's Lord of the Sabbath. He doesn't say he's you know, Lord of other categories of the law. He's Lord of the Sabbath because he was going to exercise authority over the Sabbath in a way that he, he didn't have to with the others because the, the, for instance the law about murder didn't really change from old to new. The law about stealing didn't change from the old to new. But the law about the Sabbath had to be reworked, had to be adjusted because it had, was connected with redemptive history. So just as the seventh day was built on the whole idea of creation and God creating in six days and then resting. But the new Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath, is built differently. It's built on the first day, the day of Christ's resurrection. And, and, uh, it, and then the rest of the week flows out of that instead of the other way around. And so, um, now, the problem with the... Christian acceptance of the Sabbath is that there are three passages in the New Testament that seem to set aside the Sabbath. There's one in Galatians chapter 4 verses, uh, verse 10 especially, but you should read 9 to 11 to get context, and another in Colossians 2, 16 and 17. And then one in Romans 14, verse 5. Um, and these are based on this expression, uh, festival, new moon celebration, or Sabbath day. Or as it says in Galatians 4, you observe days, months, seasons, and years. Which, which sound, you know, because the Sabbath is mentioned, it sounds like, what is being set aside or criticized is the Sabbath. But it's not the Sabbath itself. 
The fact is that this language is used as a, a shortcut or a formula to describe the sacrificial calendar of the Old Testament. And it's used throughout the Old Testament this way. And I have numerous passages, and, and this is just a fraction of the passages I could have written in the notes that talk, that show how these same words are used to sum up the sacrificial calendar. Sacrificial calendar, which is indeed set apart and set aside in the New Testament age. But it doesn't mean that the Sabbath law itself is set apart, that the, that the fourth commandment has no validity to us anymore. But it's as if the Old Testament Sabbath is transformed. So it's not the same as the other commandments, but it's not the same as the, the, sacrifice, the ceremonial law either. It's as if it dies in the tomb with Jesus. You know, that first, that first, the day he spent in the tomb was the Sabbath day. So it was as if that day was buried, and then the next day, the new Sabbath rose with him and became the Christian Sabbath, the, what Revelation 1.10 calls the Lord's Day. And now it is a celebration of his victory and, uh, and of his conquering of death. But, of course, much of the... It's not that the you know, resting is nullified, but much is added to it. Anyway, so that's, I'm, that's all I'm going to say about the Sabbath. You can read more. There's plenty more that isn't even in the notes about the change from seventh day to first day. If you're interested in more than that, I could get you more as well. But let's talk about the application of this because that's really what this is, what everything's about is how does this affect our lives so the Ten Commandments first of all we see that we are people under the law of Christ you know uh, Paul addresses this in 1st Corinthians chapter 9 he says to those he's talking about relating to all people and he, so he first talks about relating to the Jews to try to win them to Christ then he talks about relating to the Gentiles to win them to Christ so he says to those under the law I became as one under the law though not being myself under the law that I might win those under the law so the Jews he acts like he's a Jew he acts like you know he's got to do the sacrifices and the ceremonies and everything like that to those outside the law, the Gentiles, I become as one outside the law. Then he says, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So he just said, I'm not under the law, but now he says, I am under the law. But then he qualifies that, he says, I'm under the law of Christ. So our relationship with the law has, you know, it's a, it's a nuanced and a little bit complicated. But we are under the law of Christ in the same way that they were under God's authority and that when God redeemed them from, Israel, from Egypt, they had to submit to him. That was part of the covenant. When, when he entered into covenant with his people, they had to, there were stipulations they had to submit to. They had to say, yes, we're going to do these things. So it is with us that we are under God's law 
um, that we operate by a different set of principles than the world does. We're supposed to look different. We're supposed to live different. We're inevitably going to be thought of as weird and despicable at times in the world's eyes because we follow a different drumbeat. We're listening to what God says and we're living according to the way he's, he told us to live. Next, we can see that this law of Christ is not a burden. It's not a, uh, just a heavy responsibility that, that uh, you know, is a burdensome thing for us. God, uh, John says in 1 John 5, 3, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. But his commandments are not burdensome. And James 1.25 and 2.12 refer to the law of Christ as the law of liberty. Now, we'll get to that, why that is in a minute. Or, you know, a little bit more about that. But the next thing I want to talk about is how the Ten Commandments teach us that morality is based on spirituality. That the two go together. That, you know, morality based, you know, morality, what is right and wrong, is not just something that you make up. It's something that comes from God, ultimately. That's why there can't really be a system of understanding what's right and wrong unless it's founded upon someone who really knows and that's only God the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom you can't really have wisdom if you don't understand God first the fear of the Lord is the foundation of living rightly without the fear of the Lord any other system of do's and don'ts is just empty and ground baseless Morality begin, and then when we look at the Ten Commandments, you can see that the first commandment really has a special place. It's like all the others flow from that first commandment. The first one says that there's a God and he must have preeminence in everything. And then all the rest are sort of applications of that. Your worship must always be directed and only to him. Directed to him and only to him. And that's the second commandment. You shall not worship idols. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. Is really saying that your, your speech has to be unto him. And uh, honoring to him. And then the Sabbath law. Your calendar must be structured around him. And then your, you honor your father and mother. Your family relationships are to be lived out in light of the one who gave them to you. And then the, the murder, the way you treat other people's lives, must be in line with God's law and God, who God is and who made the people that you're dealing with. And then the adultery commandment, the way you handle your own sexuality, must be in line with who he is. And then the law about stealing. Number eight, 
The way you treat other people's possessions must be in line with his love. And then the law about uh, lying and and, uh, bearing false witness. The way you speak about others must be in line with his love and his truth. And then the law about coveting. Even your desires must be in conformity with his will and in trust of his goodness. So you see how all of them flow from the first one. And, you know, our society's rejection of the Ten Commandments. You know, a lot of people think, that's the problem. No, that's not the problem. The problem with our society is the rejection of the God who gave the Ten Commandments. That's how the change happens. First, you reject the God and then you reject his laws. But it it all springs from the relationship between God and man. And then the final, well, there's one more thing after this, but the penultimate thing I want to talk about is that we actually see the gospel itself embedded in the Ten Commandments. You know, God doesn't give his people the Ten Commandments and then say, if you keep these, I'll deliver you from Egypt. Instead, he delivers them from Egypt, and then he gives them the Ten Commandments. He saves them, and then he commands them. And that's a very important order. Before the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, the chapter before, in Exodus 19 verse 6, God says to his people, after having redeemed them from Israel, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He calls them his people. He takes them for himself and then he gives them the Ten Commandments. His salvation is the ground of human obedience. It's not the result of human obedience. Or another way to put it, obedience is the result of salvation, not the cause of salvation. Christian obedience is not an attempt to gain the favor of God. It's the expression of gratitude for the undeserved favor of God. God gives before he asks us to give. God opens his heart to us before he asks us to open our hearts to him. All of our doing is only because of what he has first done for us. This is extremely important. You see, the Pharisees, the Pharisees were zealous for the Ten Commandments, but in the wrong way. It's not enough to be zealous for God's law. It's not Christian to just be zealous for God's law. It's not Christian to be merely zealous for morality. We must be zealous for God and for our eyes open to his grace poured out to us in Christ, in spite of our disobedience, 
and then live for him in gratitude for what he's done. And the last thing I want to just mention briefly, and there's so much, so much more. And if you're wanting more, let me just recommend a book to you. Um, this dear man, uh, I knew him before he passed away, and he was such a precious man and a great theologian as well. His name was Edmund Clowney, and uh, he, he wrote a book called How Jesus Transforms the Ten Commandments. He was actually right down here in uh, Charlottesville at the PCA Church uh, Trinity for a long time as their scholar-in-residence. Um, but if you, if you want to follow up on this whole, all this concept, but there's one more thing he brings out that I haven't mentioned yet, and so I just want to at least mention it, even though uh, it's late, and that's that the Ten Commandments not only um, prepares us for to see our need for Jesus. You know, we we see God's law, we see we don't keep it, and we realize that that we need Christ to forgive us. We need the cross. But it not only teaches us what we're supposed to be like, but it also teaches us what Jesus is like. That really the, the Ten Commandments and the whole law, it's like our, a messianic prophecy pointing forward to the time that someone would come who actually lives like this, who actually is like this, and upon him we set our hope. For our hope is not based on our ability to keep God's law. It's based on the fact that he did keep God's law. Perfectly. And received the reward for that. And now he grants that reward to those who unite with him in faith. And this is part of the beauty of the Ten Commandments. They tell us, they describe Jesus. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord, for this important part of your word and all there is here for us. We've just scratched the surface this morning. We thank you even more for the greater Moses who came and who lived out before human eyes these commandments not only in their superficial meaning but in the depths of what they mean we praise you Lord that he desired only good we praise you that he sought you and had no other gods before you. That he submitted perfectly to your will. Oh Lord, it is surely on account of him alone that we can even come into your presence and expect to not be destroyed, but rather to be received. And that, Lord, now as we come to the table of our Lord, where we celebrate 
the event where all of his perfections came to a climax in his obedience to the cross. We thank you, dear Lord, that even now he is with us. For he told us that he will be with us to the end of the age. So, Lord, be with, may he be with us now as we partake of the sacrament. And may we each be given hearts that hunger for him who is our true food and our true drink. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.